0: We are continuing our conversation with Sekou Cook, the author of Hip Hop Architecture. Sekou is an architect, researcher, educator, curator, and assistant professor at Syracuse University School of Architecture, where he teaches exploratory design studios and seminars. In part two of this episode, we discuss Sekou's now finished exhibit at the MoMA, how the transformation of public spaces has been used to displace marginalized communities Architecture's response to social justice movements like Black Lives Matter, Siku's ultimate desert island hip hop track, and much, much more. Take a listen. <music> Well, speaking of MoMA, you're featured in a <laughs> MoMA exhibition right now. Thank you. Re- yeah. <laughs> Just a plug, but no, I'm really also interested in hearing about your experience. For people listening, it's called Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America. And it feels like all of these exhibits are currently in conversation with one another. But can you tell us a little bit about the work that you have on display there and the whole experience of being involved at MoMA, which, I don't know, Yeah, has its own I don't want to put words in your
1: mouth. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I know where you're going with that. But it is like the institution, right? It is kind of like being in that space and saying the things that we're saying is almost a definition of speaking truth to power. But it's a fascinating experience, even just being invited to be in there. I was blown away by the invitation and to just know that the work that I'm doing is relevant enough for people to bring it to that biggest stage, that public stage. So yeah, it's a fascinating process. And also, again, the first major show at the museum to feature Black architects. These are newly commissioned works by 10 Black architects, designers, and artists. And two of the people that I mentioned before, Ola Lecon and Amanda Williams, are in that show as well. And my piece in the show is situated in Syracuse, New York, where I currently am and have been for the last 10 years and expanding some of the research and thoughts that I've been doing here in Syracuse because part of the brief of the call for the MoMA show was to think about these ideas through cities, through separate cities that we would be focusing on. And Syracuse has this really powerful history that really parallels the histories of many cities in the country where in the Northeast, where there was the Great Migration from the South after Reconstruction era, where a lot of Black people went up North looking for work. And this was a stop along the way. And so we have a pretty decent Black population here. But of course, they've been historically ghettoized to one section of the city And then that section of the city is always the first section to be called to be cleared because it's called a slum. And so they clear out a bunch of housing and then create a public housing project. So Pioneer Homes is one of the first housing projects created in the state of New York and one of the oldest in the country, built in 1938. And then when they need a highway to come through with urban renewal, they clear all of the rest of the Black neighborhood and run the highway right through it, and even run the highway through part of the housing project that they had just built 20 years before. So there are all these crazy layers of history that are in this one location. And now, because they're taking down a section of the highway, they're thinking about Clearing out all of that public housing and transforming it into new mixed income housing. And so I've set up my product as a kind of preemptive critique of what they're about to do. So projecting forward onto the kind of least common denominator housing design that they'll put in the location and then basically sampling and mixing and layering on top of each other, all of the various historical layers of things that used to be there and mixing it all together and making this new commentary about the use of public space.
0: And is that plan to bulldoze through the highway and replace the public housing with mixed income housing? Is that already set in motion? Is it?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's been in motion for the last two or three years, I believe. Right. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we all need to have that side, right? Because we know that they're just going down the exact same road with eyes wide open and don't seem to be making different decisions that are really going to result in different ends for people. So it just seems like they're setting themselves up to make the same mistakes over and over again. Right. right.
0: It's like they're um, remixing the same song. <laughs> <They're neither again. laughs>
1: yeah, we've heard that tune before. And what it said to us before is that people get placed and displaced and replaced. And only about 20% of the people who get displaced ever come back to live in the newly designed mixed income neighborhood.
0: Hmm. Are you involved with the communities that are going to be most affected by that plan?
1: No, I would say I'm not deeply involved with them. I have had involvements at different levels through some of the work that I've done with my students. I've been involved in some initial community conversations, met with many community leaders in Syracuse on the South Side, dealt with some projects there, I've built some work in that area. So I am familiar with and involved with on some level, but it'd be disingenuous for me to claim that I have like a heavy involvement to influence the process. I feel like my best way to influence the process is to bring as much awareness to it as possible on the stages that are accessible to me and through my work, which is I'm a designer. I'm not really a community organizer or a community advocate,
0: right? Right, of course. I was just curious, but I mean, clearly what's underpinning all of this is there's such a strong social consciousness embedded in all of your art. And we've talked about this a lot already, but about how sort of normative architecture is resistant to those ideas. But in light of the last year and a half with Uh one of the greatest civil rights movements of our lifetimes with the Black Lives Matter movement and the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among others, do you feel like, architecture as a profession is actually responding to that? And if not, what do you feel needs to be done to make those changes?
1: They're responding. (laughs) What kind of response or is that response effective is the bigger question, right? I would love to sit here and say that I have all the ideas, but I don't, right? I remember when all of the protests started to happen in Minnesota, my primary message was just to stop and take note of my own privileges, right? Like what privileges have I had in my life and how thankful can I be about those so that others can reflect on their own privilege. And once we start to understand the nature of privilege in this country and how it manifests into the ways that people live and relate to each other, then that greater level of awareness can start to influence how decisions are made. The way that the response has been thus far has been a kind of reactionary response. It's like, okay, let's get as many Black people as we know who are architects to come lecture in our spaces. Let's get as many Black people or start hiring Black professors, maybe. And let's do something to recruit and get more Black people into our classes, accept more into our schools. And it's like, dude, we've been asking for this and saying this for like 40 years.
0: I so would have thought.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like none of this is new to us, right? Like all of these newly woke people coming to us with all these ideas, like we've been sitting on the sideline talking about this shit for forever. It's not news to us. And Going out and trying to just automatically recruit all these people and automatically hire Black folks to teach in these programs isn't immediately effective because you have this deeply rooted cultural disease. <laughs> it's really so deeply embedded in the nature of how architecture expresses itself that you're not going to change it overnight. You have to have a really, really long-term investment in changing people's minds. They're not a whole bunch of Black students lining up to even get into architecture school. And when you do look at the students who are recruiting, they haven't had the guidance that they've needed through high school and through their guidance counselors to point them to how to get into an architecture school. In other parts of the world, there are entire training camps that train students how to put together a portfolio to get into an architecture school, right? All the things you need to do to get into architecture school. We're nowhere near creating that kind of infrastructure as yet.
0: Right, I mean, you talk about it being a disease. Like it's like they're trying to treat one part of the body, but then Uh the rest of the body has cancer still. And I don't know. Yeah, you can't just change these things overnight. And just adding representation for the sake of representation, it still begs the question of whether like, We're incorporating that into like the movers and shakers, the power brokers of an institution like a university, right? Like just having more black students or black professors is just one element of like who's actually making the decisions for the overall institution about fees and preparation for incoming students. And as you just said, so many of these things go so much further back than at the university level.
1: I can share with you, Rebecca, this one story here at Syracuse where our dean is probably one of the most progressive, one of the most industrious and clear-minded and really aggressive leaders in this area and has been doing most of the best work that he could possibly do to address this issue in the really right way. And last semester, last fall, there was this really amazing studio taught by two Black professors coming in and talking about, again, the histories of Syracuse and Southside and some overlap with some of the work that I did for the MoMA show. And when I looked at the studio and the content of that studio, I was thinking, this is a studio that I've wanted to teach for years. This is just beautiful how they put it together. And it was amazing the approaches that they had and the freedom that they gave the students. And there was so much complaints that their students had. The students, they had so much resistance and it was just such a challenge for them because all the students were all thinking, well, you're not teaching us architecture. (laughs) Like we're not learning what we're supposed to be learning. And because they had already, they were fourth year students. So they had already gone through three years of being taught architecture in one way, and then all of a sudden they're supposed to be learning about social justice and Blackness and history to create architecture. And that was so foreign to them that it was really hard to digest. So in the end, the studio was a success on many levels, but it was such an exemplar of how far we have to go. It's not just, okay, this is the solution. Let's put it in action that brings up all kinds of other challenges that we're not yet prepared to tackle.
0: Right. Because maybe in their mind, there's like a deep anxiety about not being prepared for the outside world of architecture, that like the profession is not responding to that same kind of sensibility that you were trying to exemplify in that studio.
1: Exactly. Exactly. The profession is not ready for it. So them being trained in this way, isn't going to get them the job at HOK that they want or at Gensler or with Big, right?
0: Right. I mean, but in light of that disconnect, what kind of advice would you give to young Black architects who want to get involved in architecture and influence the built environments around them if there still is so much change that needs to be done between changing, yeah, overhauling the whole institution?
1: I always am telling students to learn The basics, like learn as much of the basic tools and tenets of the discipline as possible, right? So that is part of their arsenal. These are the things that they can use to one, become a great architect, and two, to challenge the nature of what architecture is. You don't create poetry until you can create basic grammar, right? You don't mess with a structure before you understand the nature of that structure. So it's really, really important to understand the basics first and then always find a way of putting yourself in the picture, putting your own identity on the paper, on the page, somehow, regardless of whatever resistances there are, because that continued resistance is useful. That's where innovation happens, at the edges of resistance. And beyond advice, I wrote this book because I wanted to make sure that I didn't just have advice for young students. I wanted them to have a tool. And this book is a tool. This book is a whole compendium of resources and ideas and directions that they can build on to legitimize their own work within the halls of academia and within the areas of higher architectural thought so that it can grow and grow and then become authentic so these are the things that really led me to write the book. And this is why I start the book with, this book is not for you. I'm talking about, it's not for the architectural elite. It is for those students who need advice, who don't have enough of a body of work or research to pin their hip hop ideals on. And now they have this tool that they can start from and build.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean... I'm really hopeful that like people will use this as the tool like to start the sort of infrastructure building that you have been talking about throughout this conversation, that this is just the beginning of more resources for people who have nowhere to look that don't see themselves reflected in their institutions or in their disciplines or anything that they're trying to work within the confines of. So, I mean, I hope people see it that way.
1: Yes, I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we only have time for one more question, just on a lighter note, but just like talking about hip hop a little bit. Do you have a favorite track that if you know, if you were trapped on a desert island somewhere, like what would be the track that you would want to listen to?
1: It's funny. After watching the latest Biggie Notorious B.I.G. documentary on Netflix, I pulled out my copy of Ready to Die on vinyl and put it on the record player and had it there for the last few weeks. But more than that, I think there is this album by Most Deaf, Yasin Bey. He was Most Deaf at the time called Black on Both Sides. And through this summer, this past June, again, when everybody was talking about social justice, everybody's talking about George Floyd and the fallout from that. And everybody's talking about Brianna Taylor. I said to everyone, listen to this album, Black on Both Sides by Most Deaf this will tell you everything you need to know about the state of race relationships and give you hope and that we can get to another level. And it gave me power and strength through that entire time. So that was just everything to me.
0: That's what I'm going to listen to after we finish this conversation (laughs) in a minute. but Yeah, I have listened to it before, but I need to give it another listen.
1: Yeah, listen again. It lands deeper. It lands differently. Once you hear it, like the track Rock and Roll, where he's breaking down the history of rock and roll and how this country was built on the backs of slave labor. It's so, so amazing. So beautiful.
0: I've been thinking about that too, like this is maybe a little tangential, but like sure. like the whole history of pop music and rock music, it just all came from slave hymns.
1: Yeah, it's not tangential at all. It's exactly what we're talking about. It's like the spaces that we live in, the institutions that we live under have been using our stuff to make money for the entire history of this country, right? Including music, including money, including culture including all aspects of culture and including architecture, right? And then we don't get a seat at the table and we don't get included in the conversations and the things that we say and do are seen as other or tangential or outsider. But the book is really about how to give value to all of those things and show that we are legitimate and authentic at the same time and that we can use that energy to create a whole new architecture for ourselves.
0: I think that's actually a very nice place to end on. I just, yeah, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope that everybody buys a copy of Hip Hop Architecture and I'm going to link it in the show notes for this episode. But thank you again.